Uh, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy 6, looking at verses 3 through 5 today, we've gone quite slowly through this passage in 1 Timothy, not necessarily by design per se, um, simply because this topic is so important. The topic over the last couple of weeks has been submission. We are, uh, in a manner of speaking, diverting from that topic today, getting beyond it a little bit, but not too far from it. We'll be uh, talking a little bit about it today as it relates to one who would teach anything other than uh, this doctrine in the church. And then coming back to it just uh, a little bit or in, in, a, in a certain manner of speaking next week as well as we go on to this call in verses 6 through 8 that we memorized a couple of months ago, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I'm very much looking forward to that message as well. Today is somewhat of a study of cause and effect. When it comes to results in our lives, it's often deeply profitable to carefully connect it to a cause if we're going to understand why we're seeing the things we're seeing. We talked a little bit in Sunday school this morning about um, the nature of how God creates us and our different personalities and propensities. And uh, when we see those personalities and propensities, the effects uh, of, of various decisions in our lives, uh, we would seek, perhaps if we're wise, to boil it down to some cause, right? To what it is within us that compels us to do or not to do something and understand whether that cause is, is right before the Lord or, or wrong before the Lord, uh, whether or not this is something that God has baked into us and that's okay and it's just who we are, or whether or not this is a personality trait or a characteristic that is being twisted or perverted or, or manipulated by my sin nature, and so something that I need to fight against and uh, something that I need to, to uh, change within my life with the help of the Lord. The choices, the circumstances within our lives that have led us to a particular result, it's worth understanding those things. And really only through that study can we then have the wisdom necessary to either reproduce those results if those results are virtuous or to avoid those re results if those results were negative. And today we're going to see Paul, in a manner of speaking, direct our attention toward the consequences of a failure to understand and appreciate this doctrine that we've considered, particularly this doctrine of submission, uh, and then maybe more broadly, a sound doctrine as a whole within our lives. The other side of the coin, if, if we could put it this way, as it relates to the teaching of submission and to sound doctrine as a whole. So last week, you recall, we spent our time, we broadened our topic. Two weeks ago, we were talking about servants and, and how servants ought to submit to their masters as unto the Lord. And we, we broadened that slightly to talk about the various other authority uh, levels in, in our lives. And then last week, we broadened it substantially. And we spoke of simply the topic of submission and the reality that it is through submission that thus, as we submit to the Lord, as we submit to his word, as we assume the mind of Christ, as Philippians 2 says, we are brought to this place of joy, this fullness of joy within our lives. It is a product of, in fact, submission within our lives. And so uh, the call was to fundamentally reconfigure how we think about submission within our culture how we think about this, this prevalent doctrine of self that pervades our culture and yet would seek to call us outside of this concept of submission. And what we're going to consider today are those who most particularly have refused this doctrine. And Paul is going to consider this with some very direct language. Let's start again in verse 1 for context, and we'll read through verse 3. The Bible says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, and I apologize, I'm stopping in the middle of the context there, we'll come beyond this in just a moment. In verse 3, we have this conditional statement, if, right? If 
any man teach otherwise. A conditional statement regarding this call to submission. A conditional statement specifically to this master-servant relationship. He conditions what he's about to say on the premise that there are those who might read these words. There are those teachers who are perhaps even in that church in Ephesus where Paul had sent Timothy to, to preside over and Timothy was, was teaching and, and directing in the church that there may be some within that church who are teaching something that is in opposition to this doctrine or are simply omitting, disagreeing with this doctrine altogether. We spoke in our first week on this topic about some among us who, having heard these words, are perhaps not ready yet to receive them. Even last week, within the context of our application, the idea was for those that have ears to hear, the heights of the joy of the Lord are found in the depths of humble submission. And we acknowledge that not everyone has ears to hear this. That not everyone is at a place yet where you are ready. And what I said early on, what I said initially in that first message is, it's okay that you're not there. If you recognize that you're not there, it's okay as long as you know that's a problem. Well, the thing that we're talking about today are teachers who would stand behind a pulpit or who would assume a measure of authority and tell you, you're not there and that's okay. A teacher that would stand up and tell you, you're not interested in this concept of submission and you don't need to be. That's the idea. That's the danger. That's the one that Paul is speaking of here. The subset of the church who have teachers who are telling them that this doctrine of submission is not relevant to them. So there are those who you've not aspired unto this, you've not recognized it, you're not quite there, you don't even necessarily like this idea that I'm espousing that the scriptures are teaching here, but you begin working through that process in your heart of being willing to receive this doctrine praying and asking the Lord to change your heart in relation to these doctrines. There is also another subset of the church who is listening. And you've recognized through the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you're not aligned with this doctrine, but your heart is not inclined to work toward this. Instead, you simply say, well, I disagree, Pastor. That certainly can't be what the text is saying. As you presented submission, as we read through the mind of Christ and the submission of Christ even unto death, and as we talk about servants and their masters and husbands and their wives and, and children and their parents and church and their members and citizens and their governments, surely it can't mean that. There's got to be another explanation. There are other men, of course, pastor, who would interpret this text in an entirely different way. There are teachers who would get up and tell me that this is not what the text is saying and that I don't need to do this and... and, and thus you're inclined to dismiss this teaching altogether. Now I myself am by no means an authority on any matter. I've been wrong many times. Many of you have been around long enough to hear me have to uh, admit something, uh, uh, correct myself publicly from the pulpit. I admit that I do not have all the answers and I acknowledge that I still have much growing to do in my own right. Growth that will end uh, only in the day when I'm in the grave. We're all a product of preconceived notions. We're all a product of assumptions and biases. And to this degree, any particular generation, any particular church is susceptible to some measure of error in understanding and judgment or in interpretation. We might look back historically at the church and we would wonder about how a church could affirm a certain doctrine that today we would consider abhorrent. We would wonder about how pastors could get up from their pulpits and preach about the inferiority of other races and use Genesis and Cain and Abel and all of these things to teach about how certain races are inferior to other races. We would, we would look back at that and we would say, how, how, how can a person who is reading their Bibles and love the Lord actually come to such a conclusion, come to such a, a, a position and we would rightly recognize that, that there were problems. We look back into our own history 
and we see the Catholic Church and any number of errors leading up to the Reformation, and we look in the Reformation, we see any number of errors in the Reformation, and we say, how is it that even with the Reformation and all of the steps that were taken within the Reformation to correct various elements, there were still so many problems that we would look at today and say, that's so clearly unbiblical. How is it that we can look back in our own movement, in our own history, which would go back to the Anabaptists and the Moravians and the Waldensians, and we would see the, the tremendous doctrinal errors that actually were corrected by some of Reformation thinking to bring us to where we are today and say, how could they possibly have ever believed that? And so we understand that there are these gaps in knowledge, these gaps in understanding, these various uh, uh, products of our, own, uh, of our own generation, of our own culture, of our own time period, of our own judgments. And yet it is never enough for us when we hear teaching with which we disagree to simply disagree. To simply say, I'm going to just ignore that when, when we can go to chapter and verse. If you ever disagree with a particular interpretation or an argument from a teacher, it's important that you find out why that you root your disagreement in something real and something firm. There are teachers that disagree with me very strongly on any number of doctrines. And they may have reasons why they disagree, and I would have reasons why I would disagree with them. But if we're both seeking truth, if we're both affirming the scriptures as they are, then we would recognize various elements of core truth. And there can be a general understanding of fellowship. There can be a general recognition that we are both men who are seeking unto truth, seeking unto the Lord, and that we are both in that manner affirmed. And then there are those. There are those teachers who simply don't like the implications of a doctrine. And so they redefine terms. They make eloquent, historical, philosophical, ideological, psychological arguments in order to invalidate the clear meanings of Scripture. Those are the ones that Paul is warning against here. Those are the ones that are teaching otherwise, that are not consenting to wholesome words. See, we humans have a tendency which lends us toward a persuasion whereby when we hear something we dislike and so naturally we disagree, we then find any reason possible to justify our disagreement rather than change ourselves. Often what this does is it lends itself to a position where we allow the meaning of Scripture to become secondary to our experiences, our desires, and our intentions. We seek to wrap the doctrines of Christ around a subjective desire which is in, within my heart things that don't come from the Bible but come from my own mind or my own desires. And this is very dangerous. When once we, in a church, seek to explain away the truths of Scripture with scholarship or philosophy or pragmatism, we lay ourselves open to being deceived into thinking that any scriptural truth is subject to change. There are any number of reasons why I would not desire to consent to what the Bible has to tell me in, in any field. Well, that's just not very compassionate. Well, that's just going to hurt someone's feelings. Well, that's just going to cause, uh, um, that's going to cause a rift. That's going to uh, make a person uh, um, uh, dislike me. Whatever it might be, there are any number of reasons. But when we allow that chain of thinking to start to tweak, to change, to alter, to manipulate what we think of doctrine, Biblical authority within our lives will quickly erode. And when biblical authority in our lives erodes, we have nothing left to stand on. We are simply at that point driven by the winds of doctrine, by the feelings of others, by the nature of our society and our culture, and the direction unto which it leads. And this is the warning that Paul's given. Teachers who refuse to consent to these wholesome words, that word meaning sound in health, sound doctrine. They are teaching otherwise. Paul says there are those in the church who would tell servants that they don't have to treat their masters with this honor, with this respect. That's not right. That's not wholesome. It may be compassionate. 
it may be philosophically right because both of them are the same in the Lord. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free, but all are one in Christ. But it's not sound doctrine. It's anything other than true. But what we want is truth. What we need is truth. Because if we're not standing on truth, then we do not have a foundation upon which to, to make a, take a stand on anything else. And the direct context, as we've seen here, is on servants being submissive to their own masters, counting them worthy of all honor, especially those who have believing masters. And if any man teach otherwise, literally, if any man instruct differently, Paul will then give the, the outcome of this conditional in just a moment. One more thing here before we move on, however. I do need to note that there is a little more insight into this word, this word to teach otherwise, that I'd like to share with you. It's found only two times in the entire New Testament, and both of them are found in 1 Imothy. This word, heterodidaskaleo. Hetero, meaning different, right? And then didaskaleo, meaning to teach, to teach differently. It's found here, naturally, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. And then it was also found in chapter 1, verse 3, where the Bible said this, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. You perhaps notice that highlighted word there in verse 3 that indicates our word in question. It was the idea in verse 3, teach no other doctrine. So Paul spoke of several different ways in this passage that a pastor could become divergent from sound doctrine. He spoke of those who get caught up in fables and endless genealogies. Uh, doing too much reading between the lines is how I described that back in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Digging into things of which God has not seen fit to reveal to us, majoring on the minors, minoring on the majors, bringing about more questions than answers, filling the minds of God's people with things that do not profit rather than those things which encourage godly edifying in faith. He spoke of those teachers who turned aside into what Paul calls here vain jangling, words that have little to no profit, but this time specifically within the relationship to the law, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. And so these were teachers who sought to speak in regard to the Christian's relationship to the law, but they had no idea what they were talking about. And Paul said, these are people who are teaching unsound doctrine. They are teaching otherwise. They are outside of the truth. Therefore, they're dangerous. Now we come to the final chapter of the book of 1 Timothy, and the teaching on this matter comes in a matter of speaking full circle. Paul began in chapter 1 by warning pastors who would teach differently about sound doctrine. And in that sense, he relates it directly to this legalizing idea, the idea that they're binding God's people back to the law. And then in chapter 6, he comes back to this idea of teaching other doctrine, but this time not in a legalizing idea, but rather into this idea of those who would disregard doctrines. Who would, who would free people through their teaching from doctrines which the Bible has made very clear. Both of them are imbalanced. Both of them have within them a measure of danger. And both of them, the church needs to discern and to, to watch out for. And so we have a pastor who would teach something other than biblical doctrine, sound doctrine, and then we might have the pastor who would simply omit teaching because he doesn't like it. And this man is to be identified within the church and his teaching is to be rejected. Again, we'll talk about this more in a moment in verse 4. But as we finish verse 3, take note of why this matters so much. Because what Paul writes here, and indeed what we find in the inspired scriptures that God has preserved for us and that we have well translated in our English, it's not just opinion. These aren't just the best practices of the apostles. In fact, that's one of the teachings that regularly goes around today. You'll have a person that gets up and says, well, yeah, you've got all of those New Testament apostles, but I just want to go back to Jesus' words. 
So let's just stick to Jesus' words in the Gospels. And they disregard the fact that the apostles were Jesus' apostles. That, that, that when Paul writes these words, these are Jesus' words. Paul says he was taught these things from Christ himself. Things which Jesus does not mention in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but which Paul says as he was out in the Arabian desert being taught by the Lord face to face, Jesus taught him to teach to others. And so to place the apostles' teachings lower in value than the gospels is in and of itself a danger and reflects the very character of what Paul is warning against here. These are the words of Jesus Christ, and these teachings are, by the testimony of Paul, who was appointed by Christ to be an apostle, these are the teachings that are according to godliness. This is what Christ expects of us. This is what Christ wants of us. And what we're looking at, as I mentioned right at the beginning, are the consequences of failing to teach sound doctrine or the consequences of you hearing sound doctrine having no reason, biblical doctrinal reason, to reject it, right? So it's not just a perspective issue, but simply saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And those consequences, the consequences within the church can be quite dramatic. Going back to verse 3 for context, he says, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, and in verse 5 we'll continue from there. Paul is very direct here. He's not pulling any punches. He directly speaks to the character and the intentions of the man who would either teach some other doctrine or who would refuse to consent to the truth of the doctrine within the church. He calls this man, and re remember here, we're talking specifically of teachers, right? We're talking specifically of teachers. All of 1 Timothy is about teachers. <laughs> this teacher is proud, that word literally meaning self-conceited, inflated, thinking far too much of himself thinking he knows better than the apostles the nature of sound doctrine. He is ignorant, failing to understand the things which he teaches or against which he disagrees. He's entirely misguided, doting about questions and strifes of words, straining at the meaning of words and the nuances of academic thought in order to defend himself against sound doctrine. Now we'll come to the results of this in just a moment, but first let's dwell upon this type of a teacher. And here it is that I want to again invoke a quote by a, a philosopher. He's, he's said to be a Christian philosopher. He um, had many doctrinal problems of his own. Who, who doesn't, I suppose? Um, and has led to any number of dangers in the thinking of the church. I would not necessarily wholesale recommend this man, nor most men that write books uh, could we ever really wholesale recommend other than the Bible itself. But this quote, and I've shared it several times before, really nails, nails it, um, really nails on the head the nature of what we do in the church, of how we take the Bible, we read the Bible, we read it plainly, it says something we don't like, and immediately we say, how can I justify it not saying what it says? How can I get around this? How can I avoid doing this without my conscience bothering me? And the quote is from Soren Kierkegaard, and he says this. He says, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Now, I don't know the extent to which Kierkegaard himself would apply the concept which he espouses. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? 
nor does it really matter. We obviously recognize that this concept does not mean no man should study to show himself approved. Or that the church has not benefited from men who have devoted, devoted their lives to the study and the exposition of the word of God. That's not what this is intending. This, that's not what I'm intending, certainly. But what Kierkegaard speaks to here is this spirit within us, which, because we don't like the implications of what the scriptures say plainly, we spend our time and our effort insulating ourselves against these doctrines through clever and careful redefining of terms and adjusting of thought and expectations regarding doctrine. So that our teaching, or the teaching of these teachers, effectively seeks to shield Christians from the fullest implications of the Bible's teaching. Now, naturally, teachers would never say it this way. They say that they found a certain meaning that unlocks a new interpretation that the Orthodox Church has just never really thought of before. Or they found an old historical interpretation that changes everything about how the church has functioned. And then they create a system which wraps itself completely around proving a certain point of teaching, uh, a point of release or a point of boundary. And this happens in the church all the time. It's happened in our circles. It's happened in much broader church circles as well. But the concept of church culture doing this isn't the main point. We'll touch upon that in our, our application. The main warning against the, here is against specific teachers who have built their doctrine around these sorts of interpretations. They're filled with a degree of self-importance, believing that they have the answers that no one else has, when in fact they're filled with ignorance and haven't considered the actual implications of their teachings. They wrestle over individual words, and use these things to establish entire bodies of teaching or of truth, writing entire books upon small snippets of ambiguous or insufficient biblical language. And this doesn't just happen in the church. Have you ever come up to someone outside the church and they come up and they say, well, let me ask you this then. If the Bible's so true and if God is so loving, why do bad things happen to good people? As if there has not been 2,000 years of debate in the church about this. As, as if there aren't thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands of pages written by Christians about this topic, as if we don't even have an entire book of the Bible that seeks to reconcile the goodness of God with, with, with man's suffering, a, a, a theological term that has even been coined called theodicy, and a book of the Bible, the book of Job, that wrestles with this concept. And they think they've got a gotcha there, and they build their entire worldview of rejection of God around something that has been answered in, 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 in a dozen ways, right? And, and has been thought of from every single angle. They've just never stopped to consider, right? And this happens within the church. People are drawn to this teaching. People are drawn to these things because they're new, they're different. Or maybe they're, they release them from some sort of feeling of guilt or of shame. Doesn't always mean necessarily that it's sinful to be drawn to this teaching. But this teaching... As we see it here, as Paul describes it here, this kind of a man who is not consenting to sound words, who, who is not, who is teaching otherwise, and the fruit of his life is the fruit of carnality, his teaching is thus carnal. It does not edify. It does not work unto godliness. It may work unto knowledge. It confirms people in their feelings or their emotions or their desire to be right or their thirst to feel uh, as though they know something that others don't know, but it doesn't foster godly edifying. It doesn't make people more spiritual. It doesn't bring them closer to the Lord. It, it, it just makes them feel more godly. And they use this resource then to judge or to stand over others in their own self-conceit or, again, to insulate themselves from sound doctrine. And naturally, this has consequences. What are the consequences? How do I know, Pastor, that this is happening? Where, what, what do I look to to see whether or not this is happening? Look to the fruit of that man, of his ministry, and of the people who are under this teaching. Look to the fruit. What fruit do you see? This is what we see at the end of verse 4 and into verse 5. I'll begin in, in, at the beginning of verse 4. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strife of words. Notice here. Whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, 
and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. As I've said all of this, you might say, well, pastor, you've said a lot of things and, and they're somewhat ambiguous. You've talked about unsound doctrine, but then you've talked about how some person might disagree with you on a measure of doctrine and yet not necessarily uh, because he's trying to teach incorrect doctrine, but he just has a different interpretive base upon which he's building and all of these different things. How can I know? Look for fruit. That's what we do in the Christian life, right? How do I know I'm a believer, pastor? How do I know whether or not I've truly believed? Look for fruit. How do I know whether or not I'm walking in the Spirit? Look for fruit. Why? Because the Bible says that there is such thing as the fruit of the Spirit, right? So look for fruit. Look for fruit. And if you don't, if you don't see fruit, then you know there's something wrong. Is, is that something wrong that you're not a believer? Or is that something wrong that you're carnal? You have to dig into that. But look for fruit. Have you seen fruit before? Well, if you've seen genuine fruit before, well, then you're probably a believer because you've borne fruit before, which means you need revival. Revive us again, right? You need to be brought back to normalcy. You need to be brought back to a place of fruit bearing. You need to connect yourself to the vine, John 15. Again, look for fruit. So what is the fruit of these man's ministries? What is the fruit of this type of teaching? Well, the fruit is carnality. It's carnality. And you see this. You can see this in, in, in broad movements. You can see this in churches. You can see this in individuals. You might see it in yourself. And so the marks of carnality that come out of this unsound doctrine, this guy may sound good, he may sound godly, but he's bearing the fruit of carnality. Envy, strife, railings. This is the idea of evil speaking or blasphemies. Evil surmisings. Uh, surmising is the act of suspecting. Evil suspecting. Evil suspicions. Uh, uh, looking at others as if they're the enemy. Drawing these definitive lines. Seeing conspiracies around every corner. A spirit that would say something like, I'm the only one who knows. I'm the only one who I can trust. This sort of an idea. The idea that everyone's wrong but me. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds. Men thriving in self-conceit are going to constantly be bickering back and forth with one another about who's right, who's wrong. You can see this in a lot of movements in the church today. You can see this in entire church bodies. All the while, they're destitute of truth, Paul says. They're so busy arguing between the lines that they simply have no time to live out what's upon the lines. They're so busy trying to get what uh, their way, trying, to, trying to, to affirm their line of thinking that they stop exercising the virtues of Christ, that they stop loving one another, that they stop submitting themselves one to another, that they start fighting instead of praying, that they start factioning off rather than seeking unity. When you see these things, there's carnality. And it's common among those whose minds are consumed with carnality, thus to judge their success. And again, we're talking about teachers primarily here and the fruit of this teaching. To judge their success upon their gains, supposing that gain is godliness. How much they've earned, how many people are following them. In our circles, how many people respond to their preaching. Supposing that gain is godliness. And Paul says, from such withdraw thyself. The consequences of failing to believe sound doctrine are not trivial. When once we begin to walk down this path whereby we willingly forsake what the Bible tells us plainly in order to defend something that we want to be correct or that we think to be correct, regardless of how well-meaning our motivation for doing so might be, we veer off the path of that which is spiritual and onto the path of that which is carnal. And that's not because we intend to, per se, but it is simply what happens when we walk outside of sound doctrine. And when once we are living apart from the spiritual, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. I've emphasized this many times. What is amazing about that verse is that that verse is not given within the context of winning the lost or speaking to the lost. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
God forbid, how should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He's speaking to believers who are dead to sin, who have been baptized with him, uh, buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. And then he warns them at the end of that passage, be careful because the wages of sin is still death. So you start to step into carnality and you start to step into rebellion as, we, as we've warned about significantly over the course of the first several weeks of this, of this year. And once you're in rebellion, the fruit of that rebellion is darkness. And once we begin to walk in darkness, we lose essential perspective. And though the light that is, the, you have the light within you, you are separated, you're severed from the vine, you're, you're, you're quenching that light, you're quenching the Spirit of God, and you no longer have the proper perspective to see the way that you should go. And you start to think that this manner of rebellion, this essence of rebellion within you is actually logical and reasonable. And, the, and your authorities are the ones being unreasonable. Not you. They, they just don't know what they're talking about. Not you. And you lose, and, and, and regardless of whether or not, as we've said before, you can actually respect your authority or not, you lose the fundamental recognition that God has placed them over you and God can work through them. And once you're in that place and you lose essential perspective, you lose your spiritual bearings, then you can make some really dangerous decisions. As we feed the carnal, the carnal grow, grows and it rolls over into other areas of doctrine and practice and then we find ourselves in places we never would have expected. And worse perhaps, especially for, for teachers of whom this is warning about, when a teacher does this, not only does he find himself in a place he never would have planned, but he takes others with him on that journey. So it is that Paul says to Timothy, identify these men Men like in chapter 1 who are caught up in fables and endless genealogies and, and, and legalizing. Men like in chapter 6 who reject doctrinal teaching, uh, sound doctrine, who reject the clear doctrines of Scripture and who seek to explain them away. And church, he says, withdraw from them. Correct them. And so we apply this morning. Four points of application. Number one. Beware of teachers who have built their ministries on alternate interpretations of established doctrines. The most direct application of our teaching this morning is, is about teachers, right? I mean, the t teachers are the focal point here. This, this may uh, apply to you in some way, in the way that you've responded to sound doctrine in some way, uh, or, or as fathers, it can certainly affect you and your families, but the, the primary focal point here is teachers. Paul keeps going back to concepts of church authority, not only... Uh, that submission is to be taught, but if an elder is teaching something different or is uh, contending against sound teaching, the church should withdraw from him and perhaps invoke those elements of chapter 5. Remember when we were in chapter 5 and we saw that concept in verse 20, them that sin rebuke before all, and we recognize that the them being spoken of in chapter 5 verse 20 was actually elders. Elders that sin rebuke before all. And so maybe invoking that chapter 5 um, premise for elders who are walking contrary to the truth we all likely have some experience with men such as this, both from our own circles and from circles that are not our own. Televangelists oftentimes fall into this category. Men who explain away sound doctrine, supposing gain to be godliness. Men uh, who either teach false doctrines or simply avoid teaching affirmative doctrines because it will not appeal to the audience that they want to feel spiritual, but not actually compel them to give up anything, not actually compel them to yield, to submit to truth. And this is a form of carnality, and it will breed carnality, and the end of that will be a carnal people. Now, there's no cheating this system. It's the system of sowing and reaping. Remember at the beginning, we talked about choices and consequences. And you look at the results of something, and when you see the results, in order to find out where those results come from, you, you dig back down to the cause, cause and effect. Well, cause and effect is called sowing and reaping in, in the Bible, right? Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The direct context of this teaching is in regard to the church taking care of the ministers of God by meeting their needs physically. But this is one single application that's well expressed here of that which we know to be a much broader biblical principle. 
that what comes in goes out. When I was in college, one of my bachelor's degrees was computer science. And in computer science, we have this phrase, G-I-G-O, GIGO, garbage in, garbage out, is what that stands for, garbage in, garbage out. The idea is that the integrity of the output, which I read on the screen, is dependent upon the integrity of the input into which I program. And the point is this. Computers are just zeros and ones. At their base level, a computer is binary. It's either, it's either on or it's off. Every switch is on or it's off. Zero, one, zero, one. That's, that's, that's the very foundation of how computers work. You either flip the switch on or you flip the switch off, and everything that's happening in the computer is a zero or it's a one. Computers don't have autonomy. A computer doesn't have a bad day and just decide it's going to spit out the wrong output for your input. Now, there can be hardware failures, things like that. But all things being normal, the computer is only going to produce what I've told it to produce. And if there's a problem in the output, it's either a problem in the programming or it's a problem in the input. If the output I want fails, it's because the input I gave it is insufficient. And in a way, the same concept applies spiritually. If garbage comes in, garbage is going to come out. If I sow to my flesh, I will reap corruption. If I sow to my spirit, I will reap life. This is the principle. If I'm placing myself under teachers that are caught up in carnality, if they are refusing to teach sound doctrine, if they are teaching other doctrines, if they are, if, if, if you're listening to men on the internet or in person, and they're caught up in fables and genealogies and refusal of clear biblical teachings and self-conceit and doting about questions and striving of words, he is planting into you corruption. And what is going to come out is envy and strife and railings and sur evil surmisings and perverse disputings of men, surmising, believing, supposing gain to be godliness. Now, these men may be interesting and they may sound good and they may have a lot of other good things to say. They may be exciting. But if they aren't saying what the Bible's saying, if they are taking what the Bible says and they're twisting it, explaining away what the Bible says, then you should expect to see carnality. And when you see that carnality within a group of people, particularly a group of people that places themselves under the teaching of a, of a particular teacher, if you see carnality among them and you see a trend of carnality, that should cause you to question something in the teacher. And then you step back and you figure out what's going on, and then if, if possible, you can step back under his teaching, or maybe not, depending on the situation. Now, I, I don't know how to say this. I, I never know how to say this, so I'm just going to say what, what I feel needs to be said. I hope that you found under my ministry, uh, not perfection by any means, but at least a spirit of humility and a desire unto the truths of the Scriptures. I've not attained unto those truths in perfection. I have my own blind spots, I'm sure, and I, I have any number of deficiencies that I actually know about. The blind spots, I don't know about those because they're blind spots, right? I need someone else to tell me about those um, because I, don't, I, I can't see blind spots. That's why they're blind spots. I have deficiencies, and I know about many deficiencies, and I work on those, and I pray through those and such. But as I've stood before you for several months now reflecting the warnings of Paul as it relates to teachers who are not affirmed and ought not to be heeded in the church, I hope and trust by the fact that you're still in these seats that you found me to some degree or another to be affirmed. If not, then you really shouldn't be in these seats, right? But these teachings, even if you have placed yourself under my primary teaching as your pastor, are still so very relevant even if you do have an affirmed minister, even if you listen online to someone who you would call affirmed. Because many of you do step beyond these walls and into the congregations of men on the radio and television and internet. Some for significantly more hours per week than I get you. And we can get this idea in our minds that by listening to sermons, that listening to sermons is always a good thing. But that isn't necessarily true. Because a minister who steps outside of sound doctrine or a minister who omits doctrine from his teaching or a minister who preaches out of a place of imbalance as it relates to doctrine can work in you the fruit of carnality. 
he can confuse, he can mislead, and at, at worst, if he resembles the kind of man against whom Paul is warning here in 1 Timothy 6, he can develop carnality in you. Now, we could spend all day naming names. I could wrap an entire sermon or two around going through various men and women and their public-facing ministries and how they have shown themselves to uh, be unaffirmed in one way, shape, or form. We could go into the broader circles of televangelism and we could really probably name almost mo uh, the majority of those with, with very large public-facing ministries and talk about some of the dangers of them. We could go closer to our circles and we could name names of individuals who have come from us and who have either made a doctrinal error at some point or who have walked down a doctrinal path and, and it's not right. And for whatever reason, he didn't correct it. And then the entire ministry almost gets built around that error. And we've seen that before. I think specifically in this case of Peter Ruckman. Uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever come in contact with people from, from Ruckman circles, a man who came from our circles and then who, who developed this doctrine and who wrapped his entire ministry around this one single doctrinal distinction. And while there's any number of good things about the ministry as a whole, the entire ministry has been brought into a tremendous place of imbalance in all of the churches that it influences by his holding on to a doctrine in imbalance and in error. We could name a bunch of names. They come from all walks of life, from the godless to the godly. We can find any number of examples. But at the end of the day, we really don't need that in full because we can simply judge ministries by their fruit. And that's what we find here. We're given that fruit. And to that end, I simply call you, exhort you to be careful who you're listening to and be careful what authority you're given them. And listen with discernment because a teacher that teaches other doctrines or does not consent to wholesome words or has given himself to genealogies and fables and these sorts of things can work in you carnality and that, that can be dangerous. Point number two. Consider how the cultural church has twisted sound doctrine. Call this the seeker-sensitive or the seeker-friendly movement. Call it new evangelicalism. Call it any number of things. What we speak of is the wing of the broader church today who has yielded to the distinctions of culture and whose walls of biblical separation have been dismantled. This manifests itself in a spirit within the church which is unwilling to believe and obey the scriptures as they're stated. If we were to talk about um, 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 6 and the nature of a 1 Timothy 6 ministry and the 1 Timothy 1 ministry, a 1 Timothy 1 ministry being these, these fables and endless genealogies and binding yourself to things of which you don't affirm, uh, and then you talk about a, a 1 Timothy 6 ministry, and that's the idea of, of not teaching sound doctrine and of departing from wholesome words and of um, just ignoring doctrines that we don't like, uh, the cultural church would be a, far more a 1 Timothy 6 type idea. An idea that the church does not, the church has assimilated into culture, and because the church has assimilated into culture, it is deeply uncomfortable with certain biblical truths, and so they explain them away. And so the scriptures speak to sexual purity, and the cultural church interprets culture into that idea, and so ignores such warnings, even inviting impurities into the church through various elements of culture. The scriptures speak of design in marriage and they interpret culture into the church and so ignore this design in affirming broken marriages and refusing to teach reconciliation and such. The scriptures speak to the nature of separation from the world. They interpret culture into the church and so they live as a reflection of the world around them with the name of Jesus tacked on. The scriptures speak of submission and they interpret culture into the church and so live in rebellion and, and, and oftentimes encourage this rebellion in their earthly authorities. And we see this, all of these things, they bear fruit in the church. They bear fruit in the lives of the people in the church. They bear fruit in the way the church is structured. They bear fruit in the culture that the church builds up. The scriptures speak of God's design in humanity. 
that God made them male and female. Calls a man to leave his father and his mother and to cleave into his wife. And the church interprets culture into the church and thus allows for this confusion and this rebellion in the midst against the very design of God for men to be men and for women to be women and for men and women to form relationships and have homes and families. And they usher in carnality and confusion through this avenue of 1 Timothy 6, rejecting sound doctrine. And let me just say this as it relates to the problems that we have in, in that broader church today. Really, even in our own circles, but as we look at the cultural church, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, it can really all be sourced to a breakdown in submission. That as rebellion has become the gold standard of our behavior in society ever really since the 60s, and as the church has invited this culture into its midst, it has brought a wholesale breakdown in church authority. And the church and the home have been brought to a place where male leadership has been rejected, where God's design has been rejected, where authority has been rejected. And this has led to a complete breakdown in moral clarity. And this is not to say that any individual church is suffering from all of the effects of such things. There are any number of churches with good testimonies who hold to a degree of hold the line to a degree along this spectrum and they, they have elements of culture within their church and they know of the problems with it and they seek to mitigate against those problems and, and they do a fine job of it. And so they operate in a manner which we might call imbalanced but which certainly would not be apostate. And this leads us closer to home because that same spectrum exists in our circles. But whereas the broader church is kind of caught up in the First Timothy 6 idea, our temptation would be more, as we talked about when we were there, the First Timothy 1 idea, right? Fables and endless genealogies, teaching of doctrines and binding ourselves to doctrines but not understanding the fullest implications of them. But the fact of the matter is they both foster carnality, don't they? Carnality can be a problem among the most careful and religious just as it can be a problem among the irreligious and worldly. And if you want proof of this, I'm not going to take you to it, but you can just read any of the Gospels and look toward this group of people called the Pharisees, right? Carnality is not something that's exclusive to the progressive end of the church. And so we go to this third point. Consider how the Orthodox Church has twisted sound doctrine. It's not common within our circles to hear of churches who also struggle with their own elements of rebellion. Dangers, churches, not so much omitting teaching about sin. Our churches are pretty good at that. Or separation or purity or holiness. Our churches are pretty good at that. But either heaping particulars of those things upon people or teaching the principles while finding ways around them in practice. And so we'll teach on sin, but we'll ignore gossip or gluttony. We'll teach on the externals of sin, but we'll never teach that it needs to start in the heart. We'll argue about the nature of the law in the New Testament because we're so appalled by the lawless nature of the cultural church as it seeks to solidify the necessary, uh, the, the, um, necessary or the necessities of morality by yoking ourselves to Old Testament concepts. We'll argue about all the ins and outs of various cultural things. What is separation? What isn't separation? What should we separate from? What shouldn't we separate from? And then we become carnal on the other end with our disputings and our, our, our envy and our strife. It's the same. It, it works in it. The same problems. It's just manifest in a different way. We set up our traditions and they're good and they're beneficial, but then we believe that we have the only way. And then we take these teachings, which are good in and of themselves, and we go looking in the Bible for them and then we try to wrap certain elements of our thinking around the Bible. And we get everything in the wrong order. See, we're supposed to draw our principles from the Bible. We're not supposed to impose our principles upon the Bible. And when we get this reversed, we get out of balance and we foster carnality in our own ranks. 
and we lose our bearings and we erect standards to prop up our own way of thinking and we demand it of others and they formulate ways to conform to the outward standards without ever having any sort of reformation in the heart and no one questions their heart because they're conforming externally but they're actually carnal and the church begins to set its standards upon externals rather than internals and then the church becomes carnal and then there is envy and there is strife and there are evil surmisings and there are railings and there are per perverse disputings of men of corrupt mind who are destitute of the, uh, of the truth. And there are men who suppose gain is godliness. And we begin to dote about these words and seek unto fables. And these things minister questions instead of godly edifying in the faith. And while sound doctrine still exists in the church, it's overshadowed by the petty bickerings and the carnalities. It can happen both ways. We need to seek unto Sound doctrine for this reason. And that brings us to our final point. Consider the consequences. All of these previous considerations, be it a direct teacher who is ignorant and carnal, or the nature of any church or broader church movement to assume some measure of carnality in its midst, if they are indulged to the point where the minister or the ministry goes from simply having natural deficiencies found in any human person unto actual being driven by carnal desires, then you will see pride. And you will see infighting. And you will see a complete breakdown of biblical principle. But it didn't start there. It starts when sound doctrine is lost somewhere where there is a, a, a misguided focus within the teaching of the church as it relates to the word of God, where things are not being taught that should be taught, or things are being taught that have no business being taught. And people aren't being exhorted unto truth anymore. And that's where the breakdown begins. There's something definitively out of balance in the manner in which there is the, uh, of the, this teaching and it is bearing the fruit of carnality within the people. Why is sound doctrine so important? Why is balance so important? Why is the word of God so important? Why must the actual words of God, not inferences based upon it, not ideas based upon it, but its very words, why must this be preeminent in our midst? Because when I step out of this, when I step outside of these walls, when I get out of, of, of the stained glass here, there are people watching. Because when I step outside of sound doctrine, when I begin to formulate lots of ideas of my own and standards and systems and philosophies and I rely upon society or culture to fill in the gaps or I rely upon biblical scholarship to, to fill in the gaps, if I begin to focus upon these things more than upon the things which I can see in the pages of my Bible, I can begin to drift. And I may not even see it unless there's a revival in my heart. See, if I'm spiritual, if I'm walking in the Spirit and I begin to drift, then the Spirit calls me back. But if I've given myself to a measure of carnality and I begin to drift, that carnality will never call me back to spirituality. And these words then become my de facto priority. To this end, the call today is to follow the example of our Savior as he struggled through his temptation in the wilderness. The tempter came to Jesus, called for him to use his power to work in his own self-interests. And Jesus replied in Matthew 4, 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The call today is a call unto sound doctrine. It's a call to seek unto sound doctrine, to seek unto those who teach sound doctrine, to be careful among those who would reflect the fruit of explaining away doctrinal truths, to look for that fruit in any ministry that you would submit yourself unto, to see if there is these clear definitive markers of carnality to look for them in our own midst and if we are to, if we do see them to get it to their source and to root it out is there some imbalance in my teaching is there some imbalance in our doctrine 
Is there some imbalance that needs to be corrected that is fostering a carnality within our midst? And it is within this scope of self-examination in our lives, in our families, in our church, in the broader church where we find safety. And when we identify these things, we either root them out, progress to root them out, or in the case of one being unwilling to root them out, a teacher being unwilling, we withdraw from that teacher. Because within the scope of that teaching, there will be a fostering of carnality. So the call is to stay close to the book, to love what God loves, to hate what God hates, to emphasize what God has emphasized, to live in grace one toward another, to dwell in humility one with another. And finally, in alignment with Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesians 5.21, we submit we exercise submission one to another in the fear of God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.